Chapter Seven of Equanimitas by Sir William Oslop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Seven Teaching and Thinking. Let us then blush in this so ample and so wonderful field of nature where performance still exceeds what is promised to credit other men's traditions only and thence come under uncertain problems to spin out thorny and captious questions nature herself must be our adviser the path she chalks must be our walk for while we confer with our own eyes and take our rise from meaner things to higher we shall at length be received into her closet secrets preface to anatomical exercitations concerning the generation of living creatures 1653 william harvey chapter 7 teaching and thinking the two functions of a medical school delivered at mcgill medical school october 1st 1894 many things have been urged against our 19th century civilization that political enfranchisement only ends in anarchy that the widespread unrest in spiritual matters leads only to unbelief and that the best commentary of our boasted enlightenment is the picture of Europe in arms and the nations everywhere gnarring at each other's heels. Of practical progress in one direction, however, there can be no doubt. No one can dispute the enormous increase in the comfort of each individual life. Collectively, the human race, or portions of it, at any rate, may in the past have enjoyed periods of greater repose and longer intervals of freedom from strife and anxiety but the day has never been when the unit has been of such value when the man and the man alone has been so much the measure when the individual as a living organism has seemed so sacred when the obligations to regard his rights have seemed so imperative but even these changes are as nothing in comparison with the remarkable increase in his physical well-being the bitter cry of isaiah that with the multiplication of the nations their joys had not been increased still echoes in our ears the sorrows and troubles of men it is true may not have been materially diminished but bodily pain and suffering though not abolished have been assuaged as never before and the share of each in the welchmerts has been enormously lessened sorrows and griefs are companions sure sooner or later to join us on our pilgrimage and we have become perhaps more sensitive to them and perhaps less amenable to the old-time remedies of the physicians of the soul but the pains and woes of the body to which we doctors minister are decreasing at an extraordinary rate and in a way that makes one fairly gasp 
in hopeful anticipation. In his Grammar of Ascent, in a notable passage on suffering, John Henry Newman asks, Who can weigh and measure the aggregate of pain which this one generation has endured, and will endure, from birth to death? Then add to this all the pain which has fallen, and will fall, upon our race, through centuries past and to come. But take the other view of it. Think of the nemesis which has overtaken pain during the past fifty years. Anesthetics and antiseptic surgery have almost manacled the demon, and since their introduction the aggregate of pain which has been prevented far outweighs in civilized communities that which has been suffered. Even the curse of travail has been lifted from the soul of women. The greatest art is in the concealment of art, and I may say that we of the medical profession excel in this respect. You of the public who hear me, go about the duties of the day profoundly indifferent to the facts I have just mentioned. You do not know, many of you do not care, that for the cross-legged Juno, who presided over the arrival of your grandparents, there now sits a benign and straight-legged goddess. You take it for granted that if a shoulder is dislocated, there is chloroform and a delicious nepenthe instead of the agony of the pulleys and paraphernalia of fifty years ago. You accept with a selfish complacency, as if you were yourselves to be thanked for it that the arrows of destruction fly not so thickly, and that the pestilence now rarely walketh in the darkness. Still less do you realize that you may now pray the prayer of Hezekiah with a reasonable prospect of its fulfillment, since modern science has made to almost every one of you the present of a few years. I say you do not know these things. You hear of them, and the more intelligent among you, perhaps, ponder them in your hearts. But they are among the things which you take for granted, like the sunshine and the flowers and the glorious heavens. Tis no idle challenge which we physicians throw out to the world when we claim that our mission is of the highest and of the noblest kind, not alone in curing disease, but in educating the people in the laws of health, and in preventing the spread of plagues and pestilences. Nor can it be gainsaid that of late years our record as a body has been more encouraging in its practical results than those of the other learned professions. Not that we all live up to the highest ideals, far from it. We are only men. But we have ideals which mean much, and they are realizable, which means more. Of course, there are Gehazis among us, who serve for shekels, whose ears hear only the lowing of the oxen and the jingling of the guineas, and these are exceptions. The rank and file labor earnestly for your good, and self-sacrificing devotion to your interests animates our best work. The exercises in which we are today engaged 
form an incident in this beneficent work which is in progress everywhere an incident which will enable me to dwell upon certain aspects of the university as a factor in the promotion of the physical well-being of the race a great university has a dual function to teach and to think the educational aspects at first absorb all its energies and in equipping various departments and providing salaries it finds itself hard pressed to fulfil even the first of these duties the story of the progress of the medical school of this institution illustrates the struggles and difficulties the worries and vexations attendant upon the effort to place it in the first rank as a teaching body i know them well since i was in the thick of them for ten years and see today the realization of many of my day-dreams indeed in my wildest flights i never thought to see such a splendid group of buildings as i have just inspected we were modest in those days and i remember when dr howard showed me in great confidence the letter of the chancellor in which he conveyed his first generous bequest to the faculty it seemed so great that in my joy i was almost ready to sing my nunc dimitis the great advances here at the montreal general hospital and at the royal victoria both of which institutions form most essential parts of the medical schools of this city mean increased teaching facilities and of necessity better equipped graduates better equipped doctors here is the kernel of the whole matter and it is for this that we ask the aid necessary to build large laboratories and large hospitals in which the student may learn the science and art of medicine chemistry anatomy and physiology give that perspective which enables him to place man and his diseases in their proper position in the scheme of life and afford at the same time that essential basis upon which alone a trustworthy experience may be built each one of these is a science in itself complicated and difficult demanding much time and labor for its acquisition so that in the few years which are given to their study the student can only master the principles and certain of the facts upon which they are founded only so far as they bear upon a due understanding of the phenomena of disease do these subjects form part of the medical curriculum and for us they are but means essential means it is true to this end a man cannot become a competent surgeon without a full knowledge of human anatomy and physiology and the physician without physiology and chemistry flounders along in an aimless fashion never able to gain any accurate conception of disease practicing a sort of popgun pharmacy hitting now the malady and again the patient he himself not knowing which the primary function of this department of the university is to instruct men about disease what it is what are its manifestations how it can be prevented and how it may be cured and to learn these things the four hundred young men 
who sit on these benches have come from all parts of the land. But it is no light responsibility which a faculty assumes in this matter. The task is beset with difficulties, some inherent in the subject and others in the men themselves, while not a few are caused by the lack of common sense in medical matters of the people among whom we doctors work. The processes of disease are so complex that it is excessively difficult to search out the laws which control them. And, although we have seen a complete revolution in our ideas, which has been accomplished by the new school of medicine, and, although we have seen a complete revolution in our ideas, what has been accomplished by the new school of medicine is only an earnest of what the future has in store. The three great advances of the century has been a knowledge of the mode of controlling epidemic diseases, the introduction of anaesthetics, and the adoption of antiseptic methods in surgery. Beside them, all others sink into insignificance, as these three contribute so enormously to the personal comfort of the individual. The study of the causes of so-called infectious disorders has led directly to the discovery of the methods for their control. For example, such a scourge as typhoid fever becomes almost unknown in the presence of perfect drainage and an uncontaminated water supply. The outlook, too, for specific methods of treatment in these affections is most hopeful. The public must not be discouraged by a few or even by many failures. The thinkers who are doing the work for you are on the right path, and it is no vain fancy that before the twentieth century is very old there may be effective vaccines against many of the contagious diseases. But a shrewd old fellow remarked to me the other day, Yes, many diseases are less frequent. Others have disappeared, but new ones are always cropping up, and I notice that with it all there is not only no decrease, but a very great increase in the number of doctors. The total abolition of the infectious group we cannot expect, and for many years to come there will remain hosts of bodily ills, even among preventable maladies, to occupy our labours. But there are two reasons which explain the relative numerical increase in the profession, in spite of the great decrease in the number of certain diseases. The development of specialties has given employment to many extra men, who now do much of the work of the old family practitioner. And again, people employ doctors more frequently, and so give occupation to many more than formerly. It cannot be denied that we have learned more rapidly how to prevent than how to cure diseases. But with a definite outline of our ignorance, we no longer live now in a fool's paradise and fondly imagine that in all cases we control the issues of life and death with our pills and potions. It took the profession many generations to learn that fevers ran their course, influenced very little, if at all, by drugs, and the sixty pounds which old Dover complained were spent in drugs in a case of ordinary fever about the middle of the last century, 
is now better expended on a trained nurse, with infinitely less risk, and with infinitely greater comfort to the patient. Of the difficulties inherent in the art, not one is so serious as that which relates to the cure of disease by drugs. There is so much uncertainty and discord, even among the best authorities, upon non-essentials it is true, that I always feel the force of a well-known stanza in Rabbi Ben Ezra. Now, who shall arbitrate? Ten men love what I hate, shun what I follow, slight what I receive. Ten who in ears and eyes match me we all surmise. They this thing, and I that. Whom shall my soul believe? One of the chief reasons for this uncertainty is the increasing variability in the manifestations of any one disease. As no two faces, so no two cases are alike in all respects, and unfortunately it is not only the disease itself which is so varied, but the subjects themselves have peculiarities which modify its action. With the diminished reliance upon drugs, there has been a return with profit to the older measures of diet, exercise, baths and frictions, the remedies with which the Bithynian Asclepiades doctored the Romans so successfully in the first century. Though used less frequently, medicines are now given with infinitely greater skill. We know better their indications and contradictions, and we may safely say, reversing the proportion of fifty years ago, that for one damaged by dosing, one hundred are saved. Many of the difficulties which surround the subject relate to the men who practice the art. The commonest, as well as the saddest mistake, is to mistake one's profession, and this we doctors do often enough, some of us without knowing it. There are men who have never had the preliminary education which would enable them to grasp the fundamental truths of the science on which medicine is based. Others have poor teachers and never receive that bent of mind which is the all-important factor in education. Others again fall early into the error of thinking that they know it all, and benefiting neither by their mistakes or their successes, miss the very essence of all experience, and die bigger fools if possible, than when they started. There are only two sorts of doctors, those who practice with their brains and those who practice with their tongues. The studious, hard-working man who wishes to know his profession thoroughly, who lives in the hospitals and dispensaries, and who strives to obtain a wide and philosophical conception of disease and its processes, often has a hard struggle, and it may take years of waiting before he becomes successful, but such form the bulwarks of our ranks, and outweigh scores of the voluble Cassios who talk themselves into, and often out of, practice. 
Now of the difficulties bound up with the public in which we doctors work, I hesitate to speak in a mixed audience. Common sense in matters medical is rare, and is usually in inverse ratio to the degree of education. I suppose, as a body, clergymen are better educated than any other, yet they are notorious supporters of all the nostrums and humbuggery with which the daily and religious papers abound, and I find that the further away they have wandered from the decrees of the Council of Trent, the more apt are they to be steeped in thaumaturgic and galenical superstition. But know also, man has an inborn craving for medicine. Heroic dosing for several generations has given his tissues a thirst for drugs. As I once before remarked, the desire to take medicine is one feature which distinguishes man, the animal, from his fellow creatures. It is really one of the most serious difficulties with which we have to contend. Even in minor ailments, which would yield to dieting or to simple home remedies, the doctor's visit is not thought to be complete without the prescription, and now that the pharmacists have cloaked even the most nauseous remedies, the temptation is to use medicine on every occasion, and I fear we may return to that state of polypharmacy, the emancipation from which has been the sole gift of Hanuman and his followers to the race. As the public becomes more enlightened, and as we get more sense, Dosing will be recognized as a very minor function in the practice of medicine, in comparison with the old measures of Esclepiads. After all, these difficulties, in the subject itself, in us and in you, are lessening gradually, and we have the consolation of knowing that year by year the total amount of unnecessary suffering is decreasing at a rapid rate. In teaching men what disease is, how it may be prevented, and how it may be cured, a university is fulfilling one of its very noblest functions. The wise instruction and the splendid example of such men as Holmes, Sutherland, Campbell, Howard, Ross, MacDonald, and others have carried comfort into thousands of homes throughout this land. The benefits derived from the increased facilities for the teaching of medicine, which have come with the great changes made here and at the hospitals during the past few years, will not be confined to the citizens of this town, but will be widely diffused and felt in every locality to which the graduates of this school may go, and every gift which promotes higher medical education and which enables the medical faculties throughout the country to turn out better doctors, means fewer mistakes in diagnosis, greater skill in dealing with emergencies, and the saving of pain and anxiety to countless sufferers and their friends. The physician needs a clear head and a kind heart. His work is arduous and complex, 
requiring the exercise of the very highest faculties of the mind, while constantly appealing to the emotions and finer feelings. At no time has his influence been more potent than at present. At no time has he been so powerful a factor for good, and as it is one of the highest possible duties of a great university to fit men for this calling, so it will be your highest mission, students of medicine, to carry on the never-ending warfare against disease and death, better equipped, abler men than your predecessors, but animated with their spirit and sustained by their hopes. For the hope of every creature is the banner that we bear. The other function of a university is to think. Teaching current knowledge in all departments, teaching the steps by which the status prescends has been reached, and teaching how to teach, form the routine work of the various college faculties. All this may be done in a perfunctory manner by men who have never gone deeply enough into the subjects to know that really thinking about them is in any way necessary or important. What I mean by the thinking function of a university is that duty which the professional corpse owes to enlarge the boundaries of human knowledge. Work of this sort makes a university great, and alone enables it to exercise a wide influence on the minds of men. We stand today at a critical point in the history of this faculty. The equipment for teaching, to supply which has taken years of hard struggle, is approaching completion, and with the cooperation of the General and the Royal Victoria Hospitals, students can obtain in all branches a thorough training. We have now reached a position in which the higher university work may at any rate be discussed, and towards its progress in the future must trend. It may seem to be discouraging, after so much has been done and so much has been so generously given, to say that there remains a most important function to foster and sustain, but this aspect of the question must be considered when a school has reached a certain stage of development. In a progressive institution, the changes come slowly. The pace may not be perceived by those most concerned, except on such occasions as the present, which serve as landmarks in its evolution. The men and methods of the old Cote Street School were better than those with which the faculty started. We and our ways at the new building on University Street were better than those of Cote Street, and now you of the present faculty teach and work much better than we did ten years ago. Everywhere the old order changeth, and happy those who can change with it. Like the defeated gods, in Keats' Hyperion, too many unable to receive the balm of the truth resent the wise words of Oceanus, which I quoted here with very different feelings some eighteen years ago, 
in an introductory lecture. So on our heels a fresh perfection treads, born of us and fated to excel us. Now the fresh perfection which will tread on our heels will come with the opportunities for higher university work. Let me indicate in a few words its scope and aims. Teachers who teach current knowledge are not necessarily investigators. Many have not had the needful training. Others have not the needful time. The very best instructor for students may have no conception of the higher lines of work in his branch. And contrariwise, how many brilliant investigators have been wretched teachers. In a school which has reached this stage and wishes to do thinking as well as teaching, men must be selected who are not only thoroughly au courant with the best work in their department the world over, but who also have ideas with ambition and energy to put them into force. Men who can add each one in his sphere to the store of the world's knowledge. Men of this stamp alone confer greatness upon a university. They should be sought for far and wide. An institution which wraps itself in Strabo's cloak and does not look beyond the college gates in selecting professors may get good teachers, but rarely good thinkers. One of the chief difficulties in the way of advanced work is the stress of routine class and laboratory duties, which often sap the energies of men capable of higher things. To meet this difficulty, it is essential, first, to give the professors plenty of assistance, so that they will not be worn out with teaching, and secondly, to give encouragement to graduates and others to carry on researches under their direction. With a system of fellowships and research scholarships, a university may have a body of able young men who on the outposts of knowledge are exploring, surveying, defining and correcting. Their work is the outward and visible sign that a university is thinking. Surrounded by a group of bright young minds, well trained in advanced methods, not only is the professor himself stimulated to do his best work, but he has to keep far afield and to know what is stirring in every part of his own domain. With the wise cooperation of the university and the hospital authorities, Montreal may become the Edinburgh of America, a great medical centre to which men will flock for sound learning, whose laboratories will attract the ablest students, and whose teaching will go out into all lands, universally recognised as of the highest and of the best type. Nowhere is the outlook more encouraging than at McGill. What a guarantee for the future does the progress of the past decade afford? No city on this continent has endowed higher education so liberally. There remains now to foster that undefinable something, which, for want of a better term, 
we call the university spirit a something which a rich institution may not have and with which a poor one may be saturated a something which is associated with men and not with money which cannot be purchased in the market or grown to order but which comes insensibly with loyal devotion to duty and to high ideals and without which nehushtan is written on the portals of any school of medicine however famous end of chapter 7 teaching and thinking recording by luke sartor berkeley california